Sam, if there's one thing I've said on this podcast many times before, it's that I love audiobooks. They let me bring my stories with me anywhere I go, and I've listened to audiobooks while driving, cooking, working out, traveling, and even recently, kind of weirdly, well, at the dentist. (laughs) Our sponsor, Audible, can help bring your books with you wherever you go. Right now, our U.S. listeners can get a 30-day free trial of Audible, the destination for audiobooks and podcasts, when they go to audibletrial.com forward slash fanbookspod. On Audible, you can download and listen to thousands of audiobooks, including one that I myself narrated and catch up on all of your reading today. That's audibletrial.com forward slash fanbookspod. And to make it even easier, that link is in the show description. Happy listening! This is the Fantastic Books Podcast. The fantasy and sci-fi book review podcast for fantasy fanatics, book nerds, and lovers of lore and stories. Covering some of the most loved fantasy series as well as brand new novels. With your hosts, Anna and Sam. Let's see what we're reading this week. Welcome back, fantastic listeners. This is Sam. And Anna. And this week, we are very excited to be returning our coverage on Mistborn, The Final Empire, chapters 28 and 29. It's been a little while since we have put out a Mistborn episode, so a quick recap is that last time we left our characters witnessing all of the executions that the Lord Ruler was putting on to put the Ska back into their place, quote-unquote. Yeah, this was a retaliation for the Ska Rebellion and the battle that took place over in the mountains. But before we get into that, we just have a couple of quick announcements. The first one being that we are going to be covering a couple more mini-series this year. So we have slated to come out probably this month in October of 2023. Brian Asher, who we have featured on the podcast before, has put out his third book in his Intercontinent series, and that book is called The Fear of Moncroy, and it's vampire-themed, so we're trying to drop that right around Halloween to go along with all of the spooky theming that he's put into it, and we are also lining up some authors for 2024, so we've got a couple people already lined up, and we're really excited to be able to expand the list of books that we've covered. One I know off the top of my head is sci-fi, so that could be more exciting, a little bit of a change up from Strictly Fantasy. If you're interested in knowing what's coming up, definitely take a look at our website, fantasticbookspod.com. We usually have information there about upcoming series and books that we're going to be covering. And just a reminder, you can also find all of the information about books that we have already covered, so where to purchase those, where to support those authors. And then we also have our merch on there too. I just wanted to remind everybody that that's there. So pick yourself up a sweet mug, a most excellent fanny pack, or a great <laughs> tote bag for your friends and family. I wonder if the fanny pack fits books in it well. Ooh, sweet fanny with a book on the go. Right? That'd be pretty good. That's the way. And then just, I think, our last, not really announcement, but I just wanted to let everybody know I have started reading the Locked Tomb series. I got a bunch of messages lately about how much people really like that book, and they have been recommending it. So I have just started the first one, Gideon the Ninth, and I'm really into it. So just keeping everybody abreast of what we're reading that's not on the podcast. Because you're still deep in series two, the Wax and Wayne series for Mistborn, right? Uh, Yes, and it has been so much fun. I enjoy the continuation of the world. 
I don't think I love it as much as the original series. I think a good way to compare it is if anyone was a fan of Avatar The Last Airbender series and then moved on to The Legend of Korra, where you have such fond memories for your OG crew and you get a really interesting cast of new characters. And they're satisfying and fun to read, but it's hard to, uh, you never kind of forget your first. (laughs) And as well, with the improvements of technology being placed in this world, it changes the dynamic and the problems and challenges these characters face. It's not necessarily a bad thing. I just don't know if it, you know, supersedes the original series, in my opinion, but really enjoying that. And I'm excited to see where that journey goes into book three. Awesome. I'm excited to wrap up coverage of Mistborn probably early 2024 so that I can finally finish the original trilogy. Oh my God, I love it. Teasing how good it is. Definitely, definitely worth the ride. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to get right into it then. So, chapter 28. The blurb on this one, I really. I have questions about it. They're talking about the deepness itself. And I know that you're not going to be able to answer my questions. But the hero, Alendi, is talking about the deepness and its physical aspects. He says that it is sentient, which I'm wondering if that has anything to do with the ghost in the mist that I encountered in book two before I stopped reading. Like if the ghost is the sort of like mind of the mist and the mist is the deepness. But I'm not sure you're raising your eyebrows at me so i don't know all will be revealed (laughs) (laughs) but he says it's a thing of destruction madness and corruption and what we do know is that the mists are considered dangerous at night you're not supposed to go out into them so i'm wondering if they have their powers currently lessened a little bit but when the mists are full force if they're a lot more destructive and dangerous and i know you can't answer so we'll just leave it at that I think you're thinking of the right questions. Well, I just don't know what the deepness is, and the mists are still very mysterious to me. Mm. In this chapter, too, Vin is sort of wondering what the deepness is as well, so I like the paralleling. She's at Keep Lekal or Lekal? Lekal. Oh, jeez. <laughs> tomato, tomato, tomato. <laughs> <laughs> she is at another ball. She's wearing the white dress this time, so we get to see that she's switching it up and... As she is walking through the ball, she's looking at all of the stained glass windows, and they show the deepness. And the imagery in here, too, I think is interesting. It talks about hills of emerald green, and we know that Terrace used to be a green and really fruitful land. The steep mountains, which Alundi references having to climb up into. And then it says steep mountains with faint wave-like lines coming from the tips. So I don't know if those are something to do with the deepness, if it's something to do with the mist, if it's something to do with the drums that have been referenced or like that beat that she's hearing or has been referenced as people hearing. And then it says a deep, dark lake. I don't know if that's the well of Ascension itself and then the deepness itself. So there's a lot of imagery there that we are not quite clear on yet. As Vin walks around, she starts contributing to different social groups and Her job this evening is to stir some gossip and really ignite the flames and really get these houses on edge for this looming house war that's entering Luthadel among the nobility. Dachshund and Breeze have been forging documents, too. She references that. So it's helping give her gossip a little bit more credence and 
there's evidence now to it because it's not like she's just saying, oh, well, I heard something here and there. If people start to snoop into it, they will find this evidence that they've been planting. Yes. And with that credibility, some of the stronger great houses are attacking the weaker ones and just decimating their homes, looting, and everyone's on edge. So a lot of the time now, these balls are a display of wealth and power and, you know, military presence. And it's also a way for these great houses to start making some strong alliances and where their loyalties lie. Vin starts talking with the queen of gossip herself, Lady Cliss. Man, she's a really interesting character. We get revelations in a couple of chapters of her true motives and alliances And she's definitely more complex than we give her credit for. She's playing a very good act. Yes. Because what we do find out in a few chapters is that she's an informant. So she's fronting as this sort of simple-minded gossip monger, but she's collecting up so much information. No one ever suspects the fool. Right, and And she plays herself really dumb until we finally get the curtain drawn aside and see how she is. Like, she comes for Vin at one point, and it's like, whoa, She's way more dangerous than I was expecting. Right now, it's definitely more of a well-mannered conversation where Vin is peppering in some misinformation and gossip about Keep Hastings and the family that they're going to be withdrawing from Luthadel. And they're the second most powerful and prominent family of the great houses in Luthadel. Their absence will leave a huge power vacuum. There's a lot of opportunity either through House Venture or another that could swoop in and expand their territory. It's interesting how quickly this gossip spreads around because Ellen ends up telling it to his father by the end of this chapter. Yeah. And his father takes it seriously and it definitely affects the way that he's politicking and and making plans. All his machinations. (laughs) But as soon as they are done talking, Vin meets up with Ellen. Surprise, surprise. Yep. And we have some classic flirting and strolling and all around witty banter amongst the two of them. But then things start to get a little bit more serious. Ellen is very concerned of the state of affairs in Luthadel. He knows a house war is coming and he's advising Vin that she should leave and flee Luthadel to be safe because if things get violent, he can't guarantee her protection, which is noble, a little misguided. (laughs) And it's like, I really enjoy the uh, irony, this whole conversation that they have. Ellen is explaining to Vin that a house war is looming and that things are guaranteed to get violent and that he cannot guarantee her protection. I think there's a moment he's even internally wondering if House Renew knows how to protect itself against Mistborn and little things like that. And the irony is just so funny to me because he's like, oh, wow, they're just so not in the know and so simple. And they just came from the country. Maybe they're not really sure how to prepare themselves. Meanwhile, you know, Vin has been an integral part in starting (laughs) this house war, is Mistborn, is all powerful. All their fault. Right. All their fault. But then Vin is also ironically telling Ellen that he should be leaving because she's worried about how dangerous it is for him. Being the head of a major family and also worried that Lady Shan Alariel is plotting against him. Which is definitely true. And Ellen completely brushes it off and says Shan's harmless. So (laughs) he's pretty oblivious about that whole situation. I do love the realization that they are both ignoring each other's warnings. 
And they're having this naivete where they're saying, let's just enjoy the night. I think it's true because they're not going to ever persuade the other to leave. Like, Ellen is, his home is here. He's never left Luthadel. And Vin obviously isn't going to leave because she's been part of the crew that's starting the house war. Vin has a Lord Ruler to kill. She isn't going anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not. No. So I think instead of arguing, they decide to put their differences aside and enjoy each other's company. There's a lot of stuff in this interaction between the two of them that I think illustrates why they're a good couple. It's like they're agreeing to disagree and not harp on it. They talk about sort of like their different backgrounds. Ellen trusts Vin now with this really important piece of information that I was really not expecting, but it's that the Venture family has such a big fortune because they're in charge of the Atium mining. Since Kelsier, this quote unquote event that happened a couple years ago that Ellen references, which was Kelsier discovering that he's a misborn and getting his powers when he snapped. So I like the small reference to the book's own history. But since that event, Ellen and his family have had trouble meeting the Lord Ruler's quotas. So they're actually in a very precarious situation because they're the link between the Lord Ruler and the ATM, and that's the Lord Ruler's key to his own power and fortune. Right. So their wealth is dependent on the generosity and the good nature of the Lord Ruler, which is such a important and dangerous place to be. Definitely walking the tightrope. Oh yeah, razor's edge for sure. So if you were Vin and you got this piece of information, what would you do? It sucks, but I would probably tell Kelsier and everyone immediately. I think I would too. And it's tough because we have this moment of vulnerability from Ellen where he reveals this huge family secret to her and, you know, he is infatuated with her and says, like, I think I'm going to kiss you. And I just feel for him because Vin grounds him in this moment and says, you know, I don't think that's a good idea. Look where we are. We have to, like, be aware of what's going on and keep up appearances. I also think it's funny that as Ellen is going through this whole explanation of the ATM mine and the wealth that they have and what ATM is, Ellen even states, if you knew more about the economics of Alamancy, this would probably make a lot more sense to you. You fool. And it's just like, oh, Ellen. The irony is bad. Yeah, I love it. But it's tough. I feel like in this moment, we have Vin emotionally and mentally wavering because she has a mission and an obligation to the crew and like what that means for their plan to overthrow the final empire. And she cares about Ellen and it's hard that there's so much conflict internally going on here. It ends up working out, but it is a really tough position to be in. And it's hard being, she's what, 16, 17? Yeah. I think it's hard because in her age bracket, she's much younger than the rest of the crew. So they brush her off as you're acting like a child, but these are her real emotions in real life. They can't see how it's affecting her and how tough it is to be in this limbo. Even when Ellen says all that information about the ATM, she out loud says, oh, Ellen, you shouldn't be telling me this. Yeah. And I think she wishes she just didn't know so that she didn't have to make a decision. Yeah. Ignorance is bliss sometimes. And now that she's armed with the knowledge, you have to make a choice whether to or not to do something with that information. Exactly. She is definitely a little conflicted here. And then she gets a little bit more conflicted because she starts to ask Ellen a bit more about his politics. And she's trying to suss out how he feels about the Lord Ruler and about these ideas of revolution and philosophy that he's very interested in. But she's trying to discern if he would be able to put his money where his mouth is. 
And in the end, I think she's a little bit disappointed because Ellen ends up saying, well, he's the Lord Ruler. He's God. What am I supposed to do? I can't change anything about it. Right. Where originally she's like, oh, my God, you are planning to overthrow him. And I love this institutionalized way of life that the nobility has where they're like, do anything about it. It's the Lord Ruler. He's God. We're ants. There's nothing we can do. I think everybody feels that way. They've lived under his thumb for thousands of years. The nobility are the nobility and the ska are the ska. And there's no changing that. And there never has been a way to change that. What are you supposed to do? Right. He's immortal. He's super powerful. Again, we're nothing to him. He is the sliver of infinity. I do love that phrase. I cannot wait for you to read more because as you get through the trilogy, the Lord Ruler is a villain. He is irredeemable. However, there are influences that go on that you can see what shaped some of his decisions. Interesting. Which I think is fascinating. Okay. It doesn't quite redeem him in any way, but you can understand and even maybe empathize a little bit with some of the decisions he's been forced to make. I like a gray character. Yeah. And I like a villain who has motivation other than I'm evil because I'm the villain. Not saying that that gives you a free pass to be evil. And I also don't necessarily like giving every villain a tragic origin story so that you feel empathy for them. But I do like a little bit more information, especially in this book, because he's such an enigma of a character. He's hardly ever on screen. We only hear about him through his aura and this persona that he's built up around himself. And the logbook. And the logbook, which is not really the Lord Ruler anyway. That's somebody else writing. Elendi. Yeah. So it's tough. But I love that phrase, sliver of infinity. Yeah, it's just awesome. I will say, I don't think Brandon Sanderson's prose is as beautiful or flowy as Name of the Wind, but he does have really good phrases like Well of Ascension and Sliver of Infinity. I like those a lot. Oh, definitely. He's good at coming up with fantasy phrases. Unfortunately, this is the end of the conversation for Ellen and Vin during this chapter. Ellen is heading off to hang out with his nobility buddies while they drink <laughs> and philosophize and they just think they're like the dead oh poet society yeah, they, they think they're so cool so stuffy bunch of nerds i don't like them there's jace's there's telden ellen and a couple of others jace's it's interesting with him because he shows up in book two right he does I'm not going to talk about that right now, but what I will say is you get a little bit of a snippet into his personality here, and it's interesting to see that character growth as the series continues. He kind of just grills Ellen on his fascination on Vin. Jace thinks it's suspicious that Vin has gotten so close to him so quickly, which is, I think, playing devil's advocate is a fair observation. I also think if you know your friend is, quote unquote, the most eligible bachelor, he's heir to this huge fortune and this really powerful family and Vin shows up right around the same time the house war gets going and gets really close to Ellen really quickly. He's just got to make sure that her intentions are good and he's definitely suspicious of her. He's I think not they're far not, off. He's not far off at all and that's what's kind of like tough is that Ellen doesn't want to hear it. Jace is reading it sort of the wrong way. He's like, oh, Ellen, she got really close to you really fast. She must be manipulating you. But it was Ellen who picked Vin out first and approached her first. So that's why Ellen is having a hard time getting on board with this accusation. But it's also kind of crazy because in a way, Vin was planted to infiltrate herself among the nobility. And Jace is seeing that for 
kind of the wrong reasons. Right, like he got to the right conclusion, but all of his pieces of information were wrong or he interpreted them incorrectly. Right, and it wouldn't make sense to like insert someone to be like, your mission, get close to Ellen Venture. Right, exactly, especially with the house war going on. Much more grand than that. For sure. So as they're... Disagreeing. Vin is out in the ballroom still, and she's talking with Lady Shan, or she's trying to. I'm not quite sure what she wanted to talk to her about or what she was trying to get out of Shan, but Vin goes up to Shan, and Shan completely dismisses her, says she doesn't need her services or her help anymore, insults her in front of everyone, and sends her away. And it's interesting that Vin realizes that this behavior is being brought on because she's disgusted, angry, maybe even jealous that she can't use Vin against Ellen and that maybe she is jealous that Vin and Ellen are close and she still might have some resentment towards Ellen because she likes him. I don't know if she likes him or if she's just annoyed that he snubbed her and picked someone who she sees as far less than her. Like Shan puts a lot of effort into her courtly manners and her appearance and having a large group of people connected to her. And Vin, in her eyes, is this just bumbling, unconnected, unfashionable girl. Why would you somebody pick her over Shan? And I don't think it's a matter of it being Ellen. I don't think she likes Ellen, but I think it was the idea that somebody really visibly snubbed her and now the whole court knows about it. And that, and I'm sure Shanda's used to getting everything she's ever wanted. Exactly. And she was about to become, if she and Ellen got married, she was about to become heir to the venture house as well. So that's a huge step power-wise for her as, as well that got taken away. Yeah. Despite the fact that Vin gets dismissed by Shan, in a way she's relieved because she's off the hook now. She doesn't have to really interact with her. But she still has to figure out what Shan's plans are, because she does still suspect her of planning something against Ellen soon. Yep, and she's definitely on to something. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say. So by the end of the night, the ball wraps up. Ellen has now had some seeds of doubt sown in him about Vin. And we actually get a section at the end of the chapter that's from his perspective, which is something that we haven't had before. So it's a totally new narration perspective that we're getting. And Brandon Sanderson actually, in his annotations, said that he... Wish he could have done more of these, but he had to wait pretty far into the books to build up the mystique and let readers waffle about whether or not Ellen was playing Vin. And so when we finally get him, it does confirm to us that Ellen does care about Vin and he's being genuine. But I like that it's immediately twisted around because now Ellen is starting to doubt Vin because of what all his friends have said and the little bit of information he gets at the end of this chapter, too. But before he gets said information, he has to talk to his dad, who is just the opposite of Ellen. Straff is really rigid. He's very firm. Ruthless, conniving, brilliant, strong, essentially a foil of Ellen. Yeah, he almost reminds me of the dad in Sound of Music at the very beginning Mm. when he runs his house very militaristically. So that's how I'm picturing Straff Venture for sure. Yeah, there's a great line at some point where they describe Straff Venture as the perfect imperial nobleman. This conversation between Straff and Ellen really starts to paint a big picture of how the looming house war is starting to affect their family. Straff tells Ellen that he needs to attend a lunch tomorrow to start negotiations of a house alliance with the Tagus family. Combined efforts could be enough to decimate 
House Hastings, which is, again, to reiterate, the second most powerful noble house in Luthadel. He's really disappointed about this because obviously he doesn't want to have to align himself with another woman. He's really interested in Valette. But his dad is saying, you can't keep hanging out with her. I already forbid you from talking to her. Stop, stop being with her. Ellen comes back and says, well, you don't even have to worry about House Hastings because they're planning to leave the city, which full circle is the gossip that Vin was spreading. And his dad just hits him below the belt. He's such an unsupportive and unloving father. He literally says, I hope I live to see you dead because this house is in for dire times if you ever take control. Who would, to their face, tell their kid that they wish that they died so that they couldn't inherit? And it's fascinating that... In this moment, especially with the book one, we hear Straff talk to Ellen this way, but we think, you know, this is your firstborn. This is supposed to be the sole inheritor of this noble house, and you're completely dismissing him. Later do we realize that Straff Venture is a very cunning and crafty man, and all his plotting and strategies really come into play into the second book, and I just, he's a great villain. I really... I love to hate him. He's a great character. I like the pitting of the two against each other because obviously it's that thing that you and I always say, like, it's your dream, dad, not mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So Straff wants Ellen to be a mini version of himself and run the house exactly the way that Straff would do it. And Ellen is such a different type of person. He's got different political ideals. So just to see the two of them interact, I think, is pretty sad because it's They're just not ever going to understand each other. But what I do think is pretty important about this scene is that we see Ellen, who's a grown man, pushed around by his dad like he's a little child and bullied by him. And then in book two, they both have to come against each other as political equals and rivals almost. So Ellen has to do a lot of growing and a lot of learning to stand up to his own dad because right now he can't even interact with him normally. And even in this moment, Straff tells Ellen to go to bed because he looks terrible. So he's just treating him like a very small and misbehaving child. Right. And Ellen has a great thought during this moment where he says, there's a difference between you and them, Ellen. Those philosophers you read, they were revolutionaries. They were willing to risk execution. You can't even stand up to your own father. Great comparison. He has these ideals of grandeur and what a perfect world he'd help create if he was in charge. But he's got a long way to go before he can really make any positive change in this world. Then we get another little bomb dropped for Ellen. So he's having a weird night. Yes. Jace shows up at his house and has actually sent someone to follow Vin and spy on her. And he reveals to Ellen that her carriage was followed. And then when they got to the city gates, she wasn't in it. It was empty. He's saying that Vin probably got out of the carriage and got out somewhere else in the city because she's probably spying for another house. And this really begins to sow some seeds of doubt that can Ellen really trust Vin? And again, all these coincidences that she and Ellen got together quickly had she been planted on purpose to get close to him. And he immediately regrets telling her that the Venture family is in charge of the ATM mines for the Lord Ruler. We're left with this feeling of dread and suspicion from Ellen. And he leaves the chapter ending on a little bit of a cliffhanger. He says he'll 
agree to go to the lunch tomorrow that his dad wants him to go to, but in exchange, he needs to borrow some spies from his dad so that they can follow someone, i.e. he's going to look into Vin himself. And this just gives me such sweaty palms for Vin. Yeah. She's already in such a tight position. Having people individually following her is going to be so dangerous. Individually. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways... I wish that during the story there had been a moment where Vin was revealed to be, in a way, a double agent or misborn to Ellen, and his reaction would have been more shocked and hurt. I think when things eventually become revealed, he's just happy she's safe and things are okay when he goes to rescue her. I would have a lot of questions if I were him, though. Right. Like, I was always expecting this big, like, and you didn't tell me I trusted you, no, like, hurt or wrong speech. Right. That's such a good moment, too, in any kind of media, like books and movies, like that moment where one person's like crying and they're like, well, I don't mean it. Like I was sent here to spy on you, but like I actually care. And like it just breaks the other person's trust. Yeah. And then in a way, it destroys a big part of that relationship. And I was waiting for that shoe to drop the whole story. And it weirdly never happened because the sequence of events moved too quickly. It probably happened a little bit off screen with Ellen learning Finn's true identity, but he also learns about it in moments of extreme danger. Again, he's just happy she's okay. And I think the shock of the moment takes away some of the time that he would be able to ask her. And then he just kind of rolls with it. In classic Sanderson fashion, the romance portion of the story is not the priority. I think you and I just tend to enjoy a good dialogue or spat. I think you do, definitely. Oh, yeah. That's fun. I think that's why you like how bantery all these characters are, too. Yeah, the dialogue in this trilogy is phenomenal. One thing that we didn't talk about, and I just wanted to mention it briefly, is that another Chandra is brought up in this chapter. Yes, the venture Chandra Tensoon. Tensoon. And I know that in book two, because I did read some of it, I got up to, I think, probably like the first quarter, third of the book. There is another Chandra going around, and there's a lot of mystique and mystery surrounding Whose skin are they wearing? And that's a big problem for Vin. So I just wanted to mention them. I don't know if that's the Chandra. I don't know if Tensoon, how important they're going to be for the plot, but they are mentioned. So I'm assuming that old Brando Sando has plans for them. I think you're reading between the lines in a good way. I am not going to confirm or deny anything. (laughs) I'm just excited to see your reaction when you get more information. Chapter 29. The blurb in this one is... Interestingly placed because it's also right before we get the final section of the logbook. But we are reconfirmed that there's something going on with Alendi and this person, Quan, who's the one who originally found him and said he was the hero of ages. And now Quan is backing out on that statement. So something's going on that we don't understand. The blurb ends with. Alendi saying, I think my presence at the Well of Ascension, as someone who's maybe not the chosen one, couldn't possibly be worse than whatever is going to happen if they continue to let the deepness win. And I'm not really sure how to interpret this because he ends up not becoming the hero of ages. We know that Rashek is the one who becomes the Lord Ruler. And I'm guessing that you can't tell me either way because you probably know having finished the series. Right. Um... I want to be able to actually expand on some things without revealing spoilers because there's a lot of complexity to this. You're onto something during this whole chapter section where 
Lendi has misgivings about attempting to reach the Well of Ascension, not knowing if he is, quote-unquote, the chosen one now. There is something to be feared of the deepness. I think that these are two different things, and reaching the Well of Ascension and getting the details from Elendi's journal in this chapter of chapter 29, speculating that if you go pure-heartedly and release the power, good things will happen. But if you use it upon yourself, your greed and desire will take over. There are some full and half-truths there. And depending on the perspective of what the outcome is desired, it's very uh, confusing. It's not quite what you're expecting when you read that. Okay. (laughs) And I think a lot of the times, especially on the first read, everyone who doesn't know has that altruistic mindset of, of course, leave myself out of this, release the power. That is like what is intended. And it could be or it couldn't be. Okay, well, I don't really understand what release the power means because they haven't even discussed that. So I don't want you to say any more about whatever that means. Okay. I thought he was supposed to like transform himself at the Well of Ascension or like die at the Well of Ascension, like sacrifice himself. So I don't know what you mean by like release the power that's in the Well of Ascension and use it on yourself. It says it in uh, later on in the chapter. Right, I just didn't want you to tell me like what that was. Oh, no, I wouldn't do that to you. Okay, I do think whatever happened, because now I'm going to jump into what Vin is reading, and there's a little bit to unpack here. It's the last part of the journal that Sazed has translated, the book that she found in the Lord Ruler's Palace. And he's referencing a lot of important things here. So we get bits and pieces about how Ferukemi works and the terrorist men people and how Rashek has riled them up saying that they're more powerful than Elendi and the people from Clenium and they shouldn't be oppressed by Elendi and the, I don't know, the Clenies <laughs> because they do have these mystical powers. And this is my third reread now. And I didn't realize it at first because we're presented with Alamancy and Ferukemi as two equivalent magic systems within this world. But I think that whatever happens at the Well of Ascension is what creates Allomancy. Because if Rashek is the person and his people have Ferrochemy and he says they're the ones with the magic and the power, I'm deducing that there are no Allomancers who would have the power. So I think Elendi gave his people unintentionally Allomancy and then conflict will ensue between Ferrochemists and Allomancers and that's how that's going to go. Oh, except for it's not Elendi, it's Rashek who makes Allomancy and becomes Lord Ruler. I don't know iffy on that part. But that's what I have really read between the lines here. All will be revealed. Ah, I can't wait for you to read it because when the great Sander Lanch happens with a lot of that like lore dump, you're just left with like, what? No, no way. Like, I remember just like shrieking while reading in bed (laughs) and like being so excited. I even though again, this is a multiple rereads now of just Mistborn, the first book, even when we got to this part today for reviewing and there was the pulsing that Elendi is mentioning, saying that they have to go up to the cave and tomorrow it will all be over. And it's this very ominous thing. And then he says, tomorrow it will all end. And that's the end of the book. And I knew it was the end of the book, but I was still so mad we didn't get any more answers. Such a cliffhanger. It is. And Vin is equally as frustrated. So, of course, she 
finishing this and being as frustrated as we are about the cliffhanger goes to find Sazed. And I love the conversation they have where she immediately asks Sazed, where's the rest of it? (laughs) He's like, the rest of what? And she replies, the logbook. And it's confirmed that that is the end of it. She's just so frustrated because obviously she wants to find more information. Sazed also being a little disappointed, but thankful of having the opportunity to have read this material because it adds a little bit more into the history of the terrorist people. Because unfortunately, their history has been wiped from any record and they've not been able to get any information over the millennia that the Lord Ruler has been in power. Yeah, he says he feels a little spoiled by the logbook compared to everyone else because he got personal satisfaction about learning of his own people's history, whereas everyone else is frustrated, like we are, that it didn't provide more answers about the Lord Ruler. One thing I think is interesting, too, is that Vin says, well, I guess because we can assume what happened, you know, he went to the Well of Ascension, and then she says, but I think he took the power for himself. He couldn't resist the temptation to use the power selfishly. So she's realizing the corruption in the Lord Ruler, which is something that she didn't see at the beginning of the book, when she argued, I think, with Ham about how if the Lord Ruler is God, should they be really fighting with God? And we saw it with Ellen in the previous chapter where he was too scared to oppose the Lord Ruler because the Lord Ruler is God. And Vin is now seeing the corruption and looking through that and seeing that he's not. Yeah, he is flawed. That sense of divinity being removed allows them to be on a little bit more of an even playing field, despite the vast difference in power level, I guess you could call it, or abilities. Right, like he, it's not man versus God, it's just man against whatever the Lord Ruler is. Yeah, monster. <laughs> Vin is also really disappointed in this chapter that whatever this heist, this situation is, is coming to an end. She says everything is going to change, isn't it? And I think she's feeling it especially keenly because she's the youngest member of the group. Everybody else has their own families, their own houses, their own friends that they can go back to. And this is her family. She doesn't have anyone to return to, except for Ellen, who she will get to (laughs) be with (laughs) in the end. But at this moment, she doesn't think that. And she even says... It's her duty to destroy Ellen's family at this point. That's a pretty dismal position to be in. Right. She doesn't want to just be used and abused when this is all done and have no purpose or connections with others. Even though she's always been a loner, she has a found family now and she doesn't want that to go away. Right. I love that where this is placed within the story because this is the pre-Sanderlanch moment. I feel like this is a building of the climax. We're going to get like one or two mini explosive moments before the storm that is the final sequences of the book. It makes it that much more kind of sad and longing for Vin to have this moment of self-realization and be sad that knowing these good times are going to be coming to an end. Right. It's the first time she's actually liked her life and had agency and power. And speaking of power... She wants to try to use one of Sazed's ferrochemi metals as a power reserve for her alamancy. So she gets to try a little bit of metal mixing. I don't know what else to call it. Crossover magic. Blasphemous metal conjuring. (laughs) (laughs) It is a cool theory if you could harness 
someone stored power and ability and then activated via allomancy. I'm just interested to see what it would look like if it did work. So in the little experiment that they do here, Sazed has stored strength in a pewter earring back. Mm. And strength is associated with pewter for both allomancy and ferrochemy, correct? Yes. So if Vin could use it, would that be like a way larger store of pewter than she actually consumed? That's an interesting point, because is it equivalent to the metal being burned or the stockpiled energy from the wielder? Right. So I'm not sure if it would end up being one really strong, intense burst of strength as she burned that small amount, or if that small amount would count for a lot more in her reserves. Right. Thankfully, this doesn't work (laughs) as fascinating as an experiment this would be because I think if this was a possibility, you would see a lot more historical conflicts between ferrochemists and allomancers and an even more passionate hunt of ferrochemists. Or even ferrochemists making a business out of it, like building up metal stores and selling them. Right, but the whole point of ferrochemists existing in secret underneath the Lord Ruler is that he feels threatened by them. I think this scene is important, too, because it really, in my mind, on the first read, discounted the fact that someone could be an allomancer and a ferru chemist. I hadn't actively had that as a theory, because that's what the Lord Ruler ends up being. But this piece of information that you can't cross-use the metals just made that idea completely impossible in my mind. Mm. So when he ended up being both, it was really surprising. I really am enjoying that second trilogy of Mistborn because they start playing into that. There are individuals called Twinborn where they have allomantic and ferrochemical abilities that complement. Twinborn. Um, The main protagonist has the ability to steel push and also increase or decrease his weight. Which has so much application. That's a jumping great back. combo. Right. Like jumping back to when we had sparring between Kelsier and Vin, a lot of the times the strength of someone's pushing ability was won by their weight. Right. So if you could make yourself way heavier, you could push so much harder. But if you make yourself lighter, you can also travel faster and further. Yeah. That's a really useful combo. That's amazing. Yeah. So the protagonist does a lot of cool stuff with that ability. There's also an antagonist that is double gold. Ooh. So he can burn gold and also has ferrochemical ability of gold, which is healing. Interesting. And so that character, it like compounds and is essentially is immortal because he can't die or be injured. Oh. Because he keeps drawing upon gold internally or via what he's wearing to heal himself. That's awesome. Yeah, it was a really, really great concept. Brandon Sanderson is very clever with, I think, the application of his magic systems. I love the magic systems themselves, but like you said, in the combat, I think he shines really well with how creatively he has the characters use the magic. Like, if I had had a character with steel pushing and pulling, I would just be like, yeah, okay, they can, like, push and pull things. I would never think to use it to transport yourself. And even in that way back opening scene where Kelsier's fighting and he's flying that ingot through the air and like hitting people with it. I just thought that was really creative. Yeah. I think, oh, I can't give it away. Actually, it's in like separate <laughs> books. 
But there's a really cool thing Vin does later on. I'm gonna wait for you to read it and see if you get as excited about it as I did when I first read it. Okay. All right. Uh, I'll get there. I'll get there. Anyways. So moving on, Vin is feeling very uh, nostalgic and having summer camp feels of like, I don't want things to change. I don't want to lose what I have because unfortunately a storm is coming in the plot and there's going to be a lot of hardship to come and she senses it. Exactly. And then the scene shifts and we get Kelsier and the rest of the crew talking. They have their classic banter, but what they're meeting about is this map that they've received from Marsh. He has taken a map that the Inquisitors gave him and sent it in an emptied out, hollowed out chair leg to Clubs' shop. They're going to copy it and send it back. And this map, it is so detailed. It lists multiple soothing stations around the city. I think 30-something? 38, I believe. It lists how many soothers and tin eyes are posted. It lists the circulating patrols of Inquisitors among the city. Any places that have been hit by the Inquisitors as far as they're investigating on Vin and where she might be. I think it's all hits that they make on Mistborn and Mistings, like Ska Mistborn and Mistings. Yeah. But the most recent one that they've listed on the map is actually a crew that they hit not long ago, and it was Theron's crew, which is the crew that Vin and Cayman's crew were working with at the very beginning of the book. So whoever's tailing Vin is still hunting her down, which is something that I had completely forgotten about in the chaos of the heist and everything going on with their plans so that again amps up the danger before our favorite sanderlanch that things are going well for the crew but the ministry is hot on their tails right if we recall the original confrontation between vin and the steel inquisitors at credit shaw they immediately asked who her father was right like they're looking for her they know she's Misting or misting. She's on uh, Luthadel's most wanted list. (laughs) (laughs) So this is upping the stakes again. And there is an interesting little side note that they tuck in, which I think was good for the readers as a whole, is that the nobility would not like to see the Steel Inquisitors at these balls and parties. Which makes them safe for Vin to go to. Right, exactly what I was going to say, because if that was the case, then... I feel like they would pick up on her immediately, and that would be that. Yeah, first ball, and she'd be gone. The obligators are there. Obligators. I know we keep flipping on how we say that. But thankfully, the Inquisitors are not. And we do end up seeing more conflict between those two groups. And I think that that conflict is what was keeping Vin safe, is the fact that the Inquisitors are looking for her, but the obligators are, on principle, not trying to help the Inquisitors. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of internal politics going on with these groups. They also mention, speaking of internal politics, the house wars and the fact that the great houses are getting more and more paranoid, more nobility have been leaving the city, so the house war has amped up quite a bit. And we're going to start seeing the fallout from that very soon when Vin goes, I think, to her next ball. Yeah, this is where shit starts hitting the fan. Right, like people start actually reacting at large instead of just on an individual family basis. Yeah. As I always like to think about it is the snow has been packed and rolled and it is just sitting on the edge of the slope, like at the top, (laughs) and it's just 
one good little push away from just rolling down and catching snowballing yeah and just becoming this massive destructive force catching everything in its wake yeah he is really good at making the ends of his books do that yeah and i think as a reader that's very satisfying i know depending on different stories you read whether it's sci-fi fantasy or mystery there's obviously the plot the rising action climax and solution but to really keep the reader engaged to the very end and get them so excited and stoked is an awesome feeling and why I really enjoy reading Brandon Sanderson's books. Right, like he has all these different strands of plot happening. Like there's stuff going on politically, there's stuff going on with Vin and the balls, there's stuff going on with Vin and Ellen, there's the crew, there's the army that they've been building, there's all these different things that seemingly all look like different threads and then somehow he weaves all those threads into like a perfect tapestry especially too on the first read i was so concerned about kelsier and his growing fame and notoriety and what that was going to do to the crew and himself i think there's a bit of foreshadowing on that in the next little part yeah, of this chapter yeah i would chapter. love to talk about that with you before we get to that there's just one last thing in this crew chat that i think is really important and that is that Kelsier asks Vin if she has found out anything from the nobility or anything about House Venture. And we saw in last chapter that she found out that they are the stewards of the ATM. It's their job to deliver the ATM to the Lord Ruler. And she says, no, I have no information. And Kelsier is suspicious, but there's a great line where he says that she's too good of a liar She's far too experienced a liar, and so he can't really do anything about it as far as confirm or deny what she's saying to be truth. Yeah, she's totally unreadable. But now let's talk about the foreshadowing. <sighs> okay. So one thing that I didn't understand on my first read-through is this constant bringing up of religions by Sazed to the crew members. And I thought it was sort of like Ham's... Philosophic debates. Yes, his philosophical debates and how that's just part of his characterization. So I thought this was part of Sazed's characterization and he was being used more as a world builder to give history to the world. But, oh, it's so much more than that. Oh, you just wait. <clears throat> okay. Well, in this book, a lot of it is feeding into the fact that Kelsier is going to become a religious martyr and a religious figure. And the religion that they talk about in this section is called the Vala. Kind of reminds me of like Valhalla. Oh, maybe. I didn't know if it was something else in the Cosmere. It might be. I just, on word pronunciation, that's what came to my mind. It doesn't have to be anything. Oh, like say it like Vala. Like Vala. 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 Could go either way. Sazed. Sazed. Yeah. <laughs> Obligator. Obligator. The audiobooks have taught us nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but Kelsier says he's in a strange mood and wants to hear about the Vala again. Essentially, they were the longest lasting religious group, despite the fact that the Lord Ruler killed their religious heads and tried to wipe out the religion. I'm just going to read this line that I think is so important foreshadow wise. Kelsier's talking and he says, some men would say that their devotion didn't make sense. The loss of the Valen leaders should have broken the people, not made them more determined to keep going. In this moment, 
Anna and I are under the impression this is where Kelsier decides that when all else fails, he'll become a martyr to be a spark of a flame to help embolden the Ska population to overthrow the Lord Ruler and the Final Empire, should he not be victorious. I think he also does a lot of work we see right before his death where he goes to all of the Ska houses and builds personal relationships with all of them. He acts as a beacon of hope so that when he does die, people feel a personal loss as well as a loss for the cause. And so they finally all rise up. And I'm just wondering if Sazed in this moment figures out what Kelsier is implying, because Kelsier says, I just needed to be reminded people will keep fighting even when things look bad and hopeless. And Sazed says, I think I understand. So I'm not sure if he's just saying he's understanding in a commiseration and a sympathetic way, or if he's actually understanding why Kelsier has been asking about all of these religions and which ones have been successful in existing into the final empire. This really gives us as readers a lot because we are getting that solemn calm before the storm. There's a lot of crazy events about to unfold, especially where we get the news that Marsh is quote unquote dead. Oh, yeah. And then just all the fights that happen at the end of the book between the Steel Inquisitors and Kelsier and the Lord Ruler and... The epic fight between Chandelariel and Vin. Oh my god, I forgot about that one. That's like the perfect like petty grudge match. That one's amazing. And I think I really enjoy that one the most out of a lot of the fights because Shan had looked down on Vin the entire story. She was like the perfect noblewoman, the uh, definition of looks and grace and just kind of spat down on Vin And in the end, Vin was the better warrior and who had the last laugh kind of thing. But I like that she took Shan down, not out of spite, but out of to protect Ellen. Since we are currently rereading Harry Potter, I feel like the Shan-Vin rivalry is like the Umbridge-Harry rivalry. Mm. And the Lord Ruler is Voldemort. It's like a big looming evil threat where like Shan really gets under your skin for just treating you poorly to your face. Yeah. And is a different kind of evil. I'll hate you. (laughs) (laughs) Well-written character. I hate you. (laughs) If you love to hate them, they are well-written. Yes. That being said, I think this is actually where we're going to wrap up chapters 28 and 29 this evening. We'll be continuing our coverage of Mistborn with chapters 30 and 31. And until next time, listeners, happy happy reading. reading. Thanks, listeners. If you're looking for more... Check us out at fantasticbookspod.com, where we have book reviews, reading list suggestions, merch, and you can even send us a message. Or find us on Facebook and Instagram at fantasticbookspod. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks. Thanks. Golden Rise Media.